What kind of a show are you guys putting on here today? You're not interested in art? No. Well, look, we're going to do this thing. We're going to have a conversation. From Chicago, this is Film Spotting. I'm Adam Kempinar. And I'm Josh Larson. Everybody ready to say goodbye to our solar system? To our galaxy. Here we go. Matthew McConaughey with David Jesse in a clip from 2014's Interstellar, a film that sees McConaughey battle the forces of quantum physics to save humanity. Interstellar, next up in our Christopher Nolan oeuvre review. Also battling the forces of quantum physics to save themselves and find meaning in existence are Andy Samberg and Kristen Milioti in the new romantic comedy Palm Springs that came to Hulu last weekend. We'll have a review of that and more today, tomorrow, it's all the same. Ahead on Film Spotting. In 10 days, Kingdom of the Planet of the Apes is coming to IMAX and theaters everywhere. What a wonderful day! This summer, one movie event will reign. It is our time. They stole my village. I know where they're taking your clan. Kingdom of the Planet of the Apes. Only in theaters May 10th. Tickets on sale now. Rated PG-13. Some material may be inappropriate for children under 13. Welcome to Film Spotting. The last couple of weeks, Josh, have seen some of the most high-profile new releases we've had since movie theaters shut down back in March. Hamilton arrived on Disney Plus two weeks ago. We talked about that on last week's episode. Also last week, I recommended Gina Prince-Bythewood's The Old Guard with Charlize Theron. That came to Netflix last weekend, and that's when you caught up with it, Josh. Indeed. I understand you liked it, maybe not as enthusiastically as I did, but you went for it, okay? Yeah, consider me a fan. I think I probably became a little more wearied by the gunplay, which you mentioned when you talked about it, probably a little more than you did. But yeah, definitely appreciate it and think it's something that uh, people should check out. Last weekend also saw the release of the World War II thriller Greyhound with Tom Hanks. That's on Apple+. Plus. Neither of us have had a chance to see that yet, but fellow critics have assured us that the nation's fathers and grandfathers have a new favorite movie. (laughs) And Josh, also out last weekend, the new horror film Relic, available on demand, Plus Palm Springs, the Groundhog Day-inspired comedy, which is available on Hulu. You saw Relic. We both saw Palm Springs. And we'll give each of those a little bit of time later in the show. But first, Tars, please cue up our overview discussion of Christopher Nolan's Interstellar. We have a mission. Our mission does not work. If the people on Earth are dead by the time we pull it off. Well, we got this far, farther than any human in history. Oh, not far enough. Make a cow. Where's the mountains? Those aren't mountains. They're waves. I'm not gonna make it. Yes, you are. Yes, you are. Upon its release in 2014, Adam, we gave Interstellar a robust 30-minute review. You were hugely enthusiastic. I was mixed to negative. You remain a big fan, and you've seen it since, I believe, right? Yeah. All right. Back in 2017. There you go. 70 millimeter. Yep. 
at the Music Box Theater, where it's going to be playing again this weekend, actually, here in Chicago in 70mm. Interstellar, currently ranked number two on your Nolan list. For me, this oeuvre review was my first revisit since 2014. Now, beyond the two of us, the movie has a score of 74 on Metacritic among critics. That's considered generally favorable. And for what it's worth, most of Nolan's movies hover around the 70s on Metacritic. Dunkirk, that's his highest rating there with a 94. So that's where we stood. But where do we stand now in 2020? Have you, Adam, passed through a wormhole and come out on the other side to see the error of your ways? Have I been sucked into a black hole, trapped behind some cosmic bookshelf as punishment until I admit the error of mine? We could relitigate our 2014 debate. We could revisit the same points we both brought up, but I'm not sure how fruitful that would be. I'm happy to do some of that, and I promise I will not bring up a certain 1968 sci-fi epic you declared verboten when discussing Interstellar. Listeners, they can revisit that whole discussion in the archives at filmspotting.net. It's episode 515. Today, I'd like to start where that review ended. In a last-minute attempt to bring me on board, Adam, you asked me if I wasn't just plain thrilled watching Interstellar. If, setting aside my complaints and quibbles, I couldn't admit to having a thrilling movie-going experience. I quickly answered in the negative, and we moved on. Watching Interstellar again, and this was before I re-listened to our review or even read what I had written about it in 2014, this was the exact question I found myself asking, especially in the context of our overview with so many Nolan films fresh in my mind. At their best, his movies do thrill me. They get me giddy. There's always a moment Nolan blows your noggin, intellectually, emotionally, existentially, and all I can do is let out a guffaw of appreciation. We've already talked about some of these moments in our overview. I think of Memento, where Leonard says, I'm chasing this guy. Nope. He's chasing me. Or how about the image of the hats in The Prestige when we realize what's really going on here? And I know you care less about it than I do, Adam, but the spinning top in those final moments of Inception, wow. On Twitter this week, marking Inception's 10th anniversary, Kevin Joggernoff said this, a decade later, and I still remember the entire packed preview screening audience audibly gasping at the smash cut ending. That was me. So I want to know, Adam, did Interstellar still make you gasp? Is there a noggin-blowing moment for you? We can quibble, and maybe we will, about Interstellar's exposition. That was my main gripe the first time around. And talk about how effectively it handles emotion. That was our main disagreement over Inception. But it's always more interesting to hear what someone loves about a film. So let's start there. Tell me how Interstellar makes you giddy. Well, really, in so many ways, as we think about this movie just as that movie-going experience, this is my third viewing, as you said. The first one, your normal theatrical experience. It might have been a critic screening, but it was definitely with an audience, as I recall. And then that 70-millimeter version with that amazing music box crowd, it was packed, and everyone was really into the film. And then here I am watching it at home on my fairly big screen. So three unique viewing experiences, I suppose. And honestly, Josh... It just gets more thrilling each time. I'm more giddy with each viewing of Interstellar. I have a feeling that would be the case with a fourth and maybe a fifth. I actually have four and a half pages of notes on this movie. I never take, you know this, I never take anywhere more than about a half page of notes. I think you're and becoming a note taker in your later years. I really years. am. Yeah, no, I love it's, it. I think it's maybe part of this whole quarantine mm, experience. Sure. You know, you just hunker down with your notebook and what else are you going to do but stare at that screen? So... <laughs> 
I have a lot of notes. We'll see if I can articulate any of what so moved me and wowed me with this film. I do have one challenge right off the top. Sophie watched this with me, as she did when she saw it the first time back in 2017, I think it was, at the Music Box. She loved it then. She loves it now. And her instructions to me just before she departed for work and I was about to sit down to record with you, it was, well, really a motion. It was just a physical motion. She did that slit throat thing. And then she told me that I had to annihilate you. Interesting. Now, wow. Even if I, <laughs> even if I was capable of that, which I don't think I am, I'm just way too tired. So if you didn't go for Interstellar yet again, Josh, it's probably not going to get me too worked up. But I'm thinking about all the ways this experience was so positive for me. And it is yet another movie right now that feels so relevant to the moment. The entire country, and in this case of Interstellar, the planet, and that's true for us as well, largely sharing the similar struggle, the similarly trying experience. And when you hear one of the voices in the documentary type footage say, we used to put strips over our mouths and nose. I was like, oh, oh yeah, can relate. Right? Oh my goodness, and then when you we see, see them see put the masks, masks on. <laughs> right. You go, okay, I get it. As a father-daughter, got to get back to my family story, I love it. As a save the world story, as a space adventure. And I didn't revisit my notes. I didn't revisit our previous conversation. I didn't realize that I had previously decreed that a certain movie was verboten to reference because I'm going to do it here as a beyond the infinite Kubrickian mind blower. And the movie does blatantly have a joke. It has a callback to 2001 in one of Tars's lines. It works for me on all of those levels. And I do think that it's a movie ultimately that makes us do what Cooper early on says humanity did before it just looked down and we worried about our places in the dirt, as he put it. We used to look up at the sky and wonder at our place in the stars. And there is that part to Interstellar, the philosophical, the existential, all those fascinating scientific questions and conundrums. But in general, I think Interstellar is a film that makes us look up. It makes us yearn. It makes us imagine. It makes us consider how we have and can rise above our limits to do unthinkable things. And to experience transcendence, to experience transcendent hope, to experience transcendent love. I think McConaughey here is perhaps doing his best work. I think the whole ensemble is wonderful, from Hathaway to Chastain, Bill Irwin as the voice of TARS, and even Matt Damon, even conniving Matt Damon as oh, he's the quote-unquote best of us. Yeah, he's fantastic, and I think just so perfectly cast in that role. Yes. There's such a build-up to seeing him because they can't say his name without describing him that way as the best of us, so we're ready to meet who that potential savior of mankind really is. But back to McConaughey real quick, there's a moment when they first get out of orbit where just with one quick expression, he finally stops fiddling with all the electronics and the instruments and he just looks at the thing he's always wanted to see that view of earth from space and he looks around him and it's just one little quick expression and he conveys the full scope of his awe and appreciation and you know i'm convinced matthew mcconaughey is the type of guy who probably has 17 of those moments a day i mean even just walking into the 7-eleven and making a perfect slushy pour he probably feels that way so who better to cast in this role and I'll even say I'm convinced it's an inside joke. At one point, I got a kick out of it when everyone has gone into their cryo sleep and McConaughey is still whispering 
he's asking Tars a question and and he says, "Why are you whispering? They they can't hear you." And I'm like, "Did the Nolans write that in just as a joke because McConaughey's always whispering. <laughs> he whispers throughout this whole movie, right? Like that's his whole MO as an actor. And even later, there's a shake of his head and it's in that big emotional scene, the one that wrecks me like it wrecks so many viewers where he's finally getting caught up on 23 years of messages and he gets accused of something. And I can't remember in this moment whether it's something first that his son says or his daughter says, but you see him just instinctually give this little recoil and shake his head no. And it, it feels that way. It feels as if in every fiber of his being, he's trying to he's trying to deny what he's being accused of, even as he knows he's guilty, even as he knows that may have not been his intention, but he can never make up for this. He can never earn their forgiveness. And in terms of the screenplay, and I mean here both structurally and some of these dialogue moments, I think it's among Nolan's best, for sure, the line that Cooper has at one point where he says, after you kids came along, your mom, she said something to me I never quite understood. Now we're just here to be memories for our kids. <laughs> You're the ghost of your children's future. I mean, that hit me very hard. And I love how just in those first five minutes, Josh, we get the whole family dynamic, who each of them are as individuals, the son, the daughter, the grandpa, the father, and what their day-to-day existence is like just in those encounters at the table and in the truck together. And I love the interview footage elements that are introduced here. I probably back in 2014 compared it to Reds. That's what it makes me think of that great Warren Beatty touch where we mix the, the fictional with the nonfiction and the cinematography, the early shot of the wing of his craft in his dream that's mirrored then when he mm-hmm. is leaving. He's peeling out of the house when Murph won't say goodbye to him. And it's this really bittersweet moment because, of course, at once he's he's crushed and he knows that he's leaving her behind and it's devastating him, but he's also getting to do the thing he really longs to do. And he's going to have that thrill again of being in a craft like that. And just with one shot, one mirrored shot, Nolan and Hoyte Van Hoytema, the DP, they they express all of that without any dialogue. There you go. No exposition, just one little visual there. And finally, I'll say this. We talked a lot about the amazing practical effects and the cross-cutting, the ambitious cross-cutting of the big sequence with the hotel and the ski lodge or the evil villain's lair and the van falling into the water in Inception. And I think here we get a sequence that is certainly just as ambitious, if not more ambitious, where we're cross-cutting between the boot-up of the old robot, which we know, we know before the characters do, is going to reveal a really harsh truth, with the older Murphy visiting her house and the nephew, who is clearly very sick, and what's going to happen with them, young Murph looking for answers in her room and Damon and McConaughey battling together on that frozen planet, which I have to say, there's something so poetic. And yes, I'll even say Kubrickian about this movie where you've got all these big ideas being reckoned with and this emphasis on science. But in a way, in that moment, we recognize that the entire future of humanity comes down to two opposing forces and two opposing ideals embodied in two men 
wrestling around on the ground with each other. <laughs> you know, that's really what it is, which takes me back to 2001 and seeing, you know, the, the primates throwing their weapons around and intimidating each other and fighting for their territory. I found that satisfying certainly isn't a good enough word for it. And suspenseful doesn't quite do it justice either. That's kind of how I feel about this entire film, honestly. But talk about suspense. Nobody really cares what I thought on the third viewing. Everybody listening had to figure I was probably going to have close to the same experience I've had before. I need to know what happened this time for you, Josh. Yeah, I mean, I I wish I could say I had a conversion or that I was going to double down and be even more pinned as a hater. But what you just talked about, that whole Matt Damon sequence, we didn't even get to talk about that uh, in our first review for fear of spoilers. And it's one of the things I really do like about the film. So, mm. so again, not getting a chance to even talk about some of the things I like. I think I have had this reputation as someone who was really down on Interstellar when I was just mixed. But Damon's great in this. And he, like Leonardo DiCaprio, I think, fare best when they're allowed to be a little weaselly. And that's definitely what we get here. Mm -hmm. I also got some Colonel Kurtz vibes from his whole character, this crazed man sure. trying to start his own new civilization, you know, unwisely. Um, so I did like that sequence. And yeah, let's get some. There is a Heart of Darkness reference too, isn't yes, there? Yeah, absolutely. So yes. a lot of, you know, a lot of those influences you can see um, on Interstellar. Yeah, let's get the scorekeeping out of the way. Definitely enjoyed it more this time around. Um, it's going to get a bump ahead of the Dark Knight Rises for sure in my re-rankings at the end of the series. But, um, you know, again, it's not like I've had some sort of conversion. I would say this time I'm mixed to positive. And you touched on one of the reasons why um, I'm a little more positive on it this time, Adam. Uh, about midway through there, you were talking about the ambition and the audacity of it. And I think that is something that I took for granted in 2014 because I had anticipated so much from this film. Nolan being one of my favorite working filmmakers the whole idea of a space movie from him. Um, the fact that some things weren't working for me, I, I kind of set aside just how much this movie was trying to do. And though I don't think it succeeded on all those levels, you checked off the fact that it was trying to do all of those and was even somewhat successful in some of them, I should have given it more credit for. Um, now as to, you know, sort of the thrills and that giddiness level, I believe that screening we saw it on uh, was an IMAX screening at Navy Pier, uh, the press that screening right. the first time around, because uh, I remember that imagery just being so intense and overwhelming in a good way. And the imagery isn't something we spent a lot of time on either in our initial review. So I want to touch on that. I had a few sort of noggin blowing moments, let me say near noggin blowing moments in Interstellar that I do want to mention where it was kind of like it got me leaning forward in my seat. Like here, here, here we go. Here's what I love about Nolan films. It is that moment where the movie switches from Cooper's perspective to that of, of Murph as an adult, where she's played by Jessica Chastain, right? Because suddenly mm -hmm. and that cut the cut. It's just a simple cut. It's a simple cut and Matching it's, it's on a action. memento like whiplashing of time and perspective. And I almost wish we had left Cooper for a longer period of time so that that could have sunk in a little bit more because we're with Murph as an adult for, for a little bit, but then we start going to cross cutting and um, it kind of undercuts what a really bravura choice it was to make that time leap. But I do like that moment quite a bit. Again, when we discovered that 
Cooper was the ghost haunting her bookshelves from inside the black hole. I mean, that's a fun little aha, like we've had in other movies. And and the visual production design at work there um, that is allowing us to visually put the pieces together, I like too. I, I don't know if either of those really count for me in terms of giving me that experience, the same experience I had in some of those other moments of his other films I mentioned. And, and bottom line really is... Not that I need every one of his films to do that. I'll be very curious to see. I can't think of one off the top of my head from Dunkirk, um, you know, that works in that way. Yet I love Dunkirk. But I Mm -hmm. do think if I had gotten something like that, I might have been able to forgive Interstellar, the other things that do hold me back and then did still hold me back on this viewing. If If it had been able to here or there grasp what it was so impressively reaching for um, in in a way that affected me as much as it it's affected you and the other people who really love this film, then I think some of the other quibbles and things that I do have, I would have been able to just toss out the window. You know I, you know I love focusing on one thing about a movie and, and being willfully mm-hmm. blind to a lot of other things in it. So um, <laughs> the fact that I, I didn't have that sort of um, moment where the movie just grabbed me and shook me like Inception does, like Memento does, like The Prestige does, like Dunkirk does. Uh, the guy's got a high bar. That's all it is about my, mm-hmm. my reception of Interstellar is that Christopher Nolan has an enormously high bar. He raised it for himself here and at least to my mind, wasn't quite able to meet it. And I, I can only respond um, with some level of disappointment. Yeah. And of course, there's people like me and my daughter Sophie, and our producer Sam this time around, who I think liked it before, but this time felt like he reached for the stars and somehow he he grabbed them. And I think that's what's so impressive for me. Honestly, Josh, this is a movie that I never thought would probably rise above its number two ranking in my Nolan list. And right now, I think it's going to supplant Memento. We'll see when we do that ranking at the end of this overview. But Watching the films in order and seeing all the ways that this film is so much like a Christopher Nolan movie, but that he manages to maybe get around some of the quibbles that even someone who loves almost every other film we've seen so far often has with his movies. And that emotional element is a key one here. That's why it feels like a masterpiece. It really does to me. And so maybe we can talk about some of those ways. We've kind of done this scorecarding throughout this whole overview. We're going in order. We're watching them chronologically. We're having these revelations about how these films truly are all connected. I mean, even before when you watch these films three or five years apart or whatever it was, you would always know that they were a Christopher Nolan movie, but watching them in order really has made us keenly aware of that. And here, most obviously, you've got his use of time, And just like we talked about with Inception a few weeks ago, the way in different universes, essentially, and here they truly are different, they're different galaxies, right? Time functions completely differently, and everyone has a different experience with it. So that seems so perfect, going back even to following to an extent, going back to Memento, certainly, we understand that he's still preoccupied with that. Protagonists who are driven by performance, and here it's not performance in the sense that Cooper is an entertainer, but he's a professional, and he's someone who is only truly living when he's doing what it is he feels he was probably put on this earth to do. We've seen that throughout these films, including people who just discover their vocation, maybe someone like Dom back in Following, for example. Inception really gave us that emotional or attempted for me emotional through line of returning home. 
You think about how important that is to the Batman films as well, among others, and seeing your kids' faces again. I mean, here... (laughs) It goes it goes without saying that's the the angst that drives this entire story. There's always cases where lies are revealed, truths are revealed, and we have a character at his core who, like all of these protagonists, is trying to deal with not only grief, but trying to deal with his guilt. Right. There is there is complicity here. There is Cooper trying to make this all matter, trying to make this count because he knows, as I said before, what he's done to his family and his daughter specifically truly is unforgivable. There's a lot about memory in here. We have Murphy at the end saying there's too many memories. I can't even go back to the bedroom, but that's what draws her back and ultimately unravel the whole puzzle. We've got not maybe thieves in this movie, but we definitely have con men like we've seen throughout so many of these films. Professor Brand played by Michael Caine, we come to learn, is a version of that. And man, obviously, is a version of that. And that's where, you're right, we left out a lot probably back in 2014. I didn't think about how we probably didn't dive into that because we didn't want to reveal too much about the movie, and Mm -hmm. that is a big reveal. But now here with some distance, I mean, that man storyline is so crucial to what makes this film such an interesting one to discuss. We have a character, again, who is making these enormous moral compromises and he praises someone like professor brand for the incredible sacrifice he makes the personal sacrifice that he lies to everyone around him who he loves because he is trying to achieve something greater and that's what man is doing as well and of course it's not a surprise nolan loves to be really on the nose with names (laughs) we've seen that quite a bit and that he is dr man as if he is i think supposed to be this representative of all mankind he creates his own moral universe basically right he decides what ends justify what means for him having gone through this experience all alone on this planet he reminds me an awful lot of leonard from memento and it reminds me of jackman and the sacrifice he makes cooper even calls him a coward which i think someone in the prestige near the end calls him a coward calls angier a coward and he says no right he explains the the bravery it took every night to go through what he mm-hmm. did so there's some crossover there as well but where we disagree of course is this is the first one where even though I wasn't a person who felt like I needed an emotional core to his films, I didn't need to have that that little tickle in my throat or feel like it was getting dusty in the room to love Christopher Nolan movies. As I said on our Inception review, I just needed to see the humanity. I needed to feel for these characters as flawed and even sometimes terrible as they were. Inception was the first movie that pushed that to the fore with the dead wife storyline and the kids he's longing to see. So when it's there, as much as it is, and you don't feel that ache at all, that's disappointing. And I didn't feel it at all. And all I feel in Interstellar is ache. You know, I felt it constantly. So For the first time, this is Nolan really reaching, ambitiously striving to hit emotional notes. And and it resonates with me. Yeah. Yeah. And 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 to be clear, I find this to be emotional. I I don't I'm not taking sort of the position you took with Inception where you couldn't connect with it at all on an emotional level. Mm -hmm. I think particularly the early scenes with Mackenzie Foy as a young Murph and McConaughey together, just you're right. The family relationships there, it's very Spielbergian, right? How how he's Mm -hmm. establishing this family unit, this domestic um group that we're going to follow. And I think those are very strong. And in some ways I find I, in some ways, I find um, his departure from young Murph to be the most 
wrenching, emotionally wrenching moment, that choice. Also, we can mention the editing here because I love how it's intercut with the countdown of his takeoff. So it's not that he leaves Murph and then we're in the cockpit. Exactly. They're happening simultaneously. And that's that's just yes. a brilliant Another way of great transition. Yes, of handling that. And it and because it makes it much more emotional. So I do agree that this is an emotional film, but I also have to say, if you can't find emotion in Interstellar, um, you may need to go talk to someone because this is a movie that is going to bludgeon you with emotional content. I mean, the the scene, it's almost like if Nolan had heard all the talk about him being a cold director and he said, okay, you say I'm a cold director, get a load of this. I'm going to sit Matthew McConaughey down in front of 20 some years of footage. And again, I'm not saying that this isn't effective or this is a bad choice, but come on, you've got and tears. And you're laughing you've and mocking tears. it. Well, I'm, I'm not mocking it. You what I'm heartless mocking, bastard. What I'm mocking is saying, yes, of course you're going to feel emotion in this movie because he's he's like holding your arms behind your back and wringing it out of you and it works and it's fine but the reason i guess maybe i would say this is an element that i feel is almost more effective in something like inception is because it's more subtly woven in with the other themes of the film which we talked about back in our overview of that movie and and that's where i found the emotion being really hitting me hard because it snuck up on me i guess so i'm not saying that I am not moved by Matthew McConaughey. I mean, he goes full Captain Phillips. We've talked about how that scene with Tom Hanks is so mm-hmm. overpowering and overwhelming and um, impressive in terms of what the actor is doing. I think McConaughey is working in the same range here. But yes, of course, this movie is going to be emotional. Um, and and that's fine. That's good. I, I, but I it's think because it's, we're so grounded, Josh, in understanding what was lost in that space. It's because of how much we feel for those characters yes. and understand the the incredible, I suppose, tragedy of it. That yes. we feel that. It's yeah. not just that it's it's a father and daughter across time who are experiencing emotional things together, no, I right? It's because the screenplay I'm, works. And that's what yeah. I'm responding to as well. I'm I'm not saying it's manipulative. I'm just saying, okay, if if you could measure the emotional right. qu- quotient in a test tube of inception you have like a quarter of the test tube of that quotient in interstellar it's flowing over the top of the test tube um and i am just saying that i responded more to having it mm-hmm. that that more subtle amount that's all it is it's just maybe how people respond to this sort of thing when it's in movies and and i will say you're right adam you you mentioned this in um in our original review, and uh, it stood out to me more so this time, maybe because I had you in the back of my mind, but the emotional implications are always part of the scientific equations as well. This kind of gets mm-hmm. into the explication element, which we don't really need to revisit, but just to, to credit you a little bit on that end, um, you know, I did recognize where whenever they, mostly when they were talking about the science, we understood um, some of the emotional reasoning behind what they were saying. And so that is an element of the film that I think does does work. Um, now, mm-hmm. on the other hand, I, I can also say, watching that scene with McConaughey, um, you can see Nolan kind of as a filmmaker figuring his way, how do I edit a scene like this? How do I take such, a, such an expressive actorly moment and how do I edit it? And that sequence with McConaughey watching the old videos is interesting because he breaks down about two seconds in, um, which again is affecting 
and and understandable. But I, you almost wonder if what if Nolan had let that play a little bit more? Like he breaks down when he sees Timothy Chalamet, who I totally forgot was in this, by the way, as as his son, the age he was when he left. And again, I could understand why he did that. But Nolan could have also let that moment breathe and saved like that expression for when we see Casey Affleck as because that's when it hit me, you know, just just as a viewer. It was like, oh, like when all of a sudden he turns around, Casey Affleck turns around with a little baby and says, here's your grandchild. Like that's that's when it kind of washes over me and, and McConaughey had already kind of blown the moment earlier, you know, Mm. he had, which, which again, it worked for me, but something similar happens a little bit in what is also an affecting moment for me, but maybe limited in a degree when he, when Cooper has his reunion with his quote unquote older daughter, you know, at the very end, Ellen Burstyn, um, great scene. Burstyn Mm -hmm. is fantastic. But also cut short, like just just when when we're, you know, just when we're getting involved in this reunion they're having, she says, Mm -hmm. you go and sends him off to Anne Hathaway's brand. And I'm sorry, that's not the relationship we have been invested in this whole movie. We've been invested in Cooper and Murph and we're finally getting there. And and it it gives us just a hint of that, but I'm ready to sit down with those two and, and just kind of be in that space with them together. And he goes and tracks down Anne Hathaway. It, it just strikes me as one of those moments where you can see filmmaking choices. Someone, as you said, we don't maybe need Nolan to be an emotions first director. Maybe it's not his strongest suit. And sometimes when these good scenes are not what they could have been, that's what we're being shown. Yeah. I mean, in relation to the two examples you just gave. It's funny because I think it speaks to not only our different, very subjective experiences with this film, but with performance and with movies in general, that I remember having the exact opposite reaction to that McConaughey breakdown scene. I remember watching it, and you're not wrong in the sense that I bet if we put it on our screens right now and we timed it, whatever moment we both describe as him getting emotional, going from stoic and curious to to obviously sad. He's he's we might even time it. Well, see, that's where we that's where we differ. Like, I think we would we would pinpoint a similar moment where he starts to break down. But the notion of him convulsing that that wasn't my sense. In fact, it was just the opposite. I was surprised at the trajectory of the scene. Actually, mm. it seemed too subtle no, to me. No, it actually no. was completely the opposite. No, I mean that's what was so great about that performance. If anything. All I thought watching it this time, I didn't remember from my two previous viewings whether or not Nolan just left the camera on McConaughey or not. Speaking of Chalamet, I thought it might have been a call me by your name end scene moment. And he certainly could have done that. And I'm not necessarily saying Christopher Nolan could have made a better choice there. I really like, obviously, not only the whole trajectory of that performance beat by beat, but I also like the choices he makes to cut back when he does to showing those faces on screen. That said, you could have done Captain Phillips. You could have done Call Me By Your Name and just left the camera on McConaughey and just let us hear the voices. Mm. Just let us hear those voices and watch him react. And maybe that would have allowed McConaughey to stretch it out even more, right? He would have had to because he knows the camera's on him the entire time. Maybe he would have held back a little bit. As it is, it did work for me. And you know what? That scene at the end, I don't disagree that it does feel clipped. But there's something about that that I actually, I guess, respect or I'm fascinated by, because it's certainly a moment where, as you said, 
<laughs> the what was your analogy the the vial or whatever is overflowing and we sure. get to the moment that so many other films would have milked they would have milked it so hard and made it so emotional and nolan keeps it grounded in the reality of who both of those people are and even accounting for to an extent how no matter what bond they have and how deep it is and that's actually kind of the point that they can be apart from each other and it still exists i feel that anyway mm. but but no matter how far apart they are, they can still have that that connection. That is something I'm definitely aware of or feeling in that moment. But it also just acknowledges that there is now such a gap in age between them. As she says, I have my kids now. There is a, a, a reality to that that's really bold for him, I think, to to acknowledge that they're not the same people they were and that there is a distance between them that that just can't be overcome in those moments. But really what it is, Josh, that that worked for me this time, especially, or what, what made me not feel like Nolan somehow took something away from me that I really wanted. It's the fact that again, he uses sound in a transition to bridge coming out of their reunion into then what he goes and does next, which is him deciding it's time to leave and he's going to go on this adventure because what it does is, and it's classic Nolan, right? It, it elides time and it, in a way, elongates it. It does elongate that moment. Even though we know that he walked out of the room, we see him walk out of that room at that point, we know that their conversation, based on everything she's saying to him, went on so much longer. That was enough for me. Just the fact that they did have that dialogue, that she continued to express to him what she thought he should do, I knew that the moment really lasted longer than what we see on screen. That was enough for me. Yeah, and the score, there is a fair amount of bridging, as you say, with the score, the Hans Zimmer score here that I do think is effective throughout the film. Um, and I also like, I don't know if you consider this part of the score, but the stopwatch ticking effect we get throughout this mm -hmm. movie, um, which is something that could be applied to any Nolan movie. Um, you know, it, it, it still, I can intellectually understand all that. It still just feels like an awkward choice in the moment for me. And I don't object to us seeing him moving on and catching up with Brand at some point. Mm -hmm. I like the idea of him going on another mission. Um, uh, it's just there, there's something awkward to that little moment. Um, I, I do want to get back to the visuals because, as I said, we didn't really give that a lot of time. Um, these are brilliantly envisioned planets. And here's a way, I think, where, you know, with all the predecessors of space epics that um, came before, I think Nolan and his team did step up to the plate, at least for me, and give us like this water planet with these mm -hmm. waves the size of Florida or those frozen clouds hovering over his spacecraft. What I really like. And, and he I, hits it. Yeah. He hits oh, it yeah, at one to point, let us that know. frozen cloud, right? Great touch. To let us know. Great touch. Yep. Um, you mentioned the fixed camera um, 
point of view, and I'm not sure if you were referring to the one that's on the wing of the Ranger spacecraft um, throughout his journey. What I love about this is it's it's really helpful orientation for all of these different vistas that were that are going to come our way. So that no matter how weird things get, we return to that camera perspective fixed on his wing, and it kind of orients us. And it also, I think, adds an element of realism. Right? It feels like a real airplane. It feels like if you've ever flown and you look out your window and you see the wing yeah. there. So it, it's once fantastical because we're in space, but also you feel sort of the nuts and bolts of it. Um, and that shot of the the shot of the film for me is probably the one where Cooper's craft is is so tiny and it's just this is what I'll remember from IMAX. Slowly mm-hmm. moving across the expanse of Saturn. Um, and just yeah. the enormity of the mission and the the smallness of his chances are are emphasized there in a way that's really remarkable. Yeah, and I think we touched on obviously that moment where he's flying down to the planet and they just clip the mountain, which is Nolan just reminding you that this is real or yes. it's more real than you think, right? This isn't just computer generated movie Correct. fantasy. There are stakes involved in all of this. You make a misstep, you could hit something that you shouldn't hit. And there's a moment too that really hit home for me when a character, I think it's one of the robots, says, Do you want me to? shut something off and he says no i need to feel the wind and it goes back to that wing moment right yeah, or yeah. i need to i need to feel the the force or he says something like that not the force like star wars but you know what i mean no it's he needs like a to feel, feel something sure. yeah and and you realize that that's what's so special about this movie and the way it is visually designed is that you never for a second feel like any of this is just all make-believe. It goes back to the idea of stakes for me. Everything is grounded in a certain reality that raises the level of tension, that raises the level of suspense. And it even gets back to another moment in the film where he's talking to David Jesse. He's talking to Romilly, and Romilly points out, wow, we just have we just have this metal that's separating mm-hmm. us from the void. You yeah. know, so there are all <laughs> these little reminders like that. Nolan is very deliberately putting all these little reminders so that we are always aware of the potential consequences and it it adds that level of of fear it adds that level of of suspense it adds that level of us feeling for the characters and hoping that they can overcome these circumstances that as another person says at one point nobody in history has really ever had to face before (laughs) you know so so knowing that knowing that these are things no one has really faced and probably never even imagined how do you make it feel real and those are some of the techniques that nolan does to pull that off. Well, this isn't the Marvel Cinematic U- Universe version of space, right? There's, it's, no. it's hard to know what choices are made, what tools are used exactly. I'm, I'm sure uh, CGI, less CGI is part of it. But you know when you're in this outer space, it just it feels. Whereas the MCU outer space doesn't, doesn't often, it can be fun, but it doesn't often feel. Right. Are we going to stop there? I mean, we have talked about this movie for probably enough time as I look at the clock ticking away. I think it's moving the same speed for both of us. I don't know. Maybe for you, it's been an hour and a half. Yeah. For me, it's I think it's gone a little little more slowly for me, but how many pages of notes did we get through? Do you feel good? Do you feel like you- You know what? I'm about three quarters of the way there. Yeah, I think we're good I'll leave some in the tank. I'll leave some in the tank when we have a- 2024 10-year anniversary revisit. How's that? Sounds like a plan. Not to mention what I'm sure is going to be some back and forth with listeners in the mailbag. And I wanted to say that because we got so much great feedback anticipating this review. It's not often we start 
really getting emails about a movie weeks out from the discussion. But there are mostly, I'm happy to say, very ardent defenders of this film who feel as passionately about it as I do. And the ones I had a chance to read, Josh, made a really strong case. I certainly could have used their words and probably stolen them to be a lot more eloquent than I was. But I say all that just to point out that there is more to discuss. There's certainly more great thoughts about this movie to share. Maybe we'll get to some of them next week. Maybe we'll save some for our oeuvre review finale yeah down the road that's a good idea because i do feel badly i saw a lot of that coming in too and and i'll just be honest my process is like i wasn't going to look at any of that until right. i had rewatched the movie myself so even on twitter people were sharing their responses to interstellar and i was like you know I, i'll get back to you after i watch it because i really wanted to go in as, as fresh as possible Interstellar is currently available to rent on most platforms if you've seen it or seen it again and disagree with our takes feedback at filmspotting.net. More about our Nolan Oeuvre review and links to our previous discussions are at filmspotting.net slash Oeuvre review. Good luck spelling that. Yeah, we, we didn't think about URLs when we uh, took that listener suggestion for the series, did no. we? <laughs> All right, I'm going to crack open another beer, Andy Samberg style, though not a pills, Adam. And then we'll be back with film spotting poll results and our review of Samberg's latest, Palm Springs. Stay with us. It's been two years since you tapped out What's your name? Andrew Naaman, sir. What year are you? I'm a uh, first year. You know who I am? Yes, sir. So you know I'm looking for players? Yes, sir. Then why did you stop playing? J.K. Simmons and Miles Teller there in a clip from 2014's Whiplash a couple weeks back. The film spotting poll asked you, what is your favorite movie about jazz or jazz musicians? That question was inspired by our 8 from 84 review last week of Francis Ford Coppola's The Cotton Club, specifically The Cotton Club Encore, the edition that just came out, wasn't it last year, Josh, 2019? Yeah, I think last fall. The best movie about jazz options then we gave you were Vincent Minnelli's Cabin in the Sky, Coppola's The Cotton Club, Damien Chazelle's La La Land, Spike Lee's Mo Better Blues, Round Midnight, Woody Allen's Sweet and Low Down, Damien Chazelle's Whiplash, or you could write in a choice for other. Josh, how did it come out? 
Well, despite the attention we gave it, or maybe because we weren't entirely enthusiastic about the Cotton Club, it is in last place with 2%. Vincent Minnelli's Cabin in the Sky received 3% of the vote. Woody Allen is next. Sweet and Lowdown got 6% of the vote. Round Midnight, 7%. Other Category received 9%. And then at the top here, Mo Better Blues with 12 La La Land with 14 But Whiplash did take it with 46% of the vote. So the only thing listeners in the comments really agreed on was that this was a patented film spotting seriously flawed poll. We heard from Jeff Rose, who said, as a drummer and someone who enjoys jazz, I'd be really upset if Whiplash wins this. Sorry, Jeff. Nothing realistic happens in this movie and the overdubs are noticeably inaccurate. The acting is good, sure, but the whole practice till your fingers bleed is ridiculous. That would mean his technique was terrible. So considering this kid's level of ability, there's no way he'd get into this seemingly prestigious university jazz ensemble. And then there's J.K. Simmons' character. Any teacher who actually behaved one-tenth as abusive as this exaggeration of a band leader would have been fired ages ago. I don't care how revered he is, it just would never fly. I was sorely disappointed by this movie as a musician, and I really can't believe it got as positive a response as it did. I would chime in here, Josh, but we had other listeners respond for us. Here's Eric Lowe, Whiplash. Through a jazz lens, a total faceplant. Giselle may have some knowledge of the form, but he clearly struggles to communicate it. This should have just been a youth orchestra movie. I hated it. <laughs> hated. He went He went Ebert. All caps hated. Why do I struggle seeing a youth orchestra movie with J.K. Simmons as the <laughs> conductor? I don't know. This feels right to me. Sven Britt says, as a non-jazz musician and lover of film, I've gotten into my fair share of arguments with professional jazz musicians about Whiplash. The overwhelming consensus is that the movie is a horrible representation of jazz and the surrounding culture, which means I have had to suggest time and time again that it is not a film about jazz. It is a film about abuse filtered through one particular lens. It just as easily could have been filtered through the lens of classical music. Okay, there you go. Or dance or acting. That said, it stands head and shoulders above any of these other films for me. So it has to get my vote. Yeah, I have played in jazz bands. I've played in jazz combos. I'm certainly not an accomplished jazz musician, but I've been around it. My best friend is a really good jazz drummer, and he feels similarly to Jeff and others. I don't think he hates the movie, but he is hyper aware of all of its inconsistencies and inaccuracies in ways that it is simply a fantasy. But that doesn't bother me. I think it's pretty clear that it's that fantastical kind of film right from the beginning and is really more trying to get into the psychological headspace of these characters rather than depict what being in a jazz university ensemble is really like in a lot of ways, even though it's a very different temperament and a very different tempo, if you will. It's similar to La La Land. It's a fantasy. Well, I don't know, Adam, if, if I saw a movie, you know, based on my limited journalism days where the reporter was forced to type away at his typewriter till his fingers bled, I would have none of it. So so I, yeah. I think I might be of on course. the other side of this. We did get a note here from Shane Adam as well. I voted Whiplash just for the J.K. Simmons entertainment value alone, but want to throw a nod to jazz on a summer's day, a documentary concert film set at the 1958 Newport Jazz Festival. I've loved this film for years, but as the news of another extended six-week lockdown has just hit my hometown of Melbourne, I'm finding films like this one, which capture the vitality of music festivals and the brilliance of their acts so well, so very important. 
A few more bits of listener feedback here and a few more recommendations. Matt Moore, based on a photo taken in Harlem in 1958, the 1994 documentary A Great Day in Harlem is a great snapshot of the thriving jazz scene in 50s New York. Using the photograph, it gives a snapshot into the 57 musicians featured in the photo, including Thelonious Monk, Count Basie, and Dizzy Gillespie. Which one's your favorite there, Josh? Oh, of those three, I'm going to go with Monk. I've actually done a fair amount of listening to Thelonious Monk. Really? So, yeah. Okay. Fair enough. And the movie uses anecdotes from the residents of Harlem to create a funny and inspiring documentary. The film was real and authentic, features often missing from most movies about jazz. There you go. Alex Mitch and Murray Anier says, my pick is Ken Burns Jazz. Astoundingly comprehensive in scope, it deep dives into the most important people, history, and ideas surrounding this most American of art forms. It took me a few months to finish, but it was a delight. Watching Wynton Marsalis wax rhapsodic about his favorite players and styles, including demonstrating on his horn is pure joy. This from RMP. Yeah, generally jazz docs are better than fictional films about jazz, in part because it is way more interesting to watch jazz musicians actually playing and talking music than to watch an actor mime playing and talk about an arbitrary conflict the writer needed to include to gin up the drama. Born to be Blue may be a decent movie. I think it's a lot better than that RMP, but it isn't as good as the Chet Baker doc, Let's Get Lost. There's also Straight No Chaser for Wall-to-Wall Monk. However, if we want a film that is really about jazz, that features great musicians playing, that is of historical historical interest and is totally weird besides the correct answer is Sun Ra's Afrofuturist classic Space is the Place which is just about as other as you can get. So of those Josh I've seen Straight No Chaser but the Baker doc is one I should definitely check out and wasn't even aware of the Sun Ra doc so I'm in. Yeah, the Sun Ra I've actually watched a little bit of it is out there. Here's Albert in Pasadena. Yeah, I'm picking the one with Denzel and Wesley Snipes that's directed by Spike Lee. Sure, Mo' Better Blues is a bit rough and meandering, but isn't a great jazz solo. Yeah, and I do like that movie, and there was a scene of Denzel practicing in that movie that I'm pretty sure I had in my top five Spike Lee shots. We close with David McFadden, who says, I'm really glad I took the opportunity to check out my two blind spots on this list, The Cotton Club and Round Midnight. Cotton Club had some extraordinary music sequences with a refreshingly out-of-tune piano and a pretty good period gangster story, but Round Midnight was incredible. Who knew Dexter Gordon had acting chops? Round Midnight combines a tragic, tortured artist narrative with documentary-quality cinema verite. You get to see Dexter Gordon, Freddie Hubbard, Wayne Shorter, and the always stylish Ron Carter in the studio in a scene that's nearly as good as anything in the Thelonious Doc straight No Chaser. Those guys, those guys are the reason I got into jazz. Ron Carter, Wayne Shorter, Freddie Hubbard, that whole original sort of Miles Davis quintet, Tony Williams playing drums, Ron Carter on the bass, Josh... We could just, can we just turn this into a jazz podcast now? Forget uh, film? I believe you've done that. Yeah, I may have. Our new poll is fundamentally sound. There are no flaws, and it's very straightforward. Mm. Maybe for once, Josh. I'm suspicious. Yeah. We wrap up our Christopher Nolan oeuvre review with Dunkirk in a couple of weeks. So we're asking you, what's your favorite Christopher Nolan film? That's it. That's okay. the question. Yeah, that is pretty straightforward. I think we're all right there. We are going to give... 10 features that Nolan has directed as options. That means we're not including Tenet because, yeah, just keeps being teased there, Adam, with a new release date, pushed back again. And at this point, I'm almost like, just just don't put these dates out there. Just, you know, mm-hmm. wait till we know. But of course, no one knows anything. That review of Dunkirk is currently planned for two weeks from now. Next week on the show, we are still working some things out, but We're hoping that as we recently touched on the movie that we both named the best film of the year so far, First Cow, with that movie coming to VOD, we 
may have an opportunity to do what we were hoping to do originally and COVID hit and it wasn't possible, which is talk to Kelly Riker. So you might hear our conversation with her next week on the show, and she would be a returning guest here on Film Spotting. She was on previously to talk about certain women. So I'm hoping that comes to fruition and you'll get to hear that soon. On our last episode, we did play a little Massacre Theater as well. That's the part of the show where we perform a scene from a movie and you get a chance at winning a Film Spotting t-shirt. In case you might have missed that, here's a little bit of that performance. Now, come on, you light another match. I generally smoke just after I eat. Why don't you come back in about 10 minutes? 10 minutes, you'll be smoking in hell. Get up! All right, if you know what film we massacred, email the movie's title along with your name and location to feedback at filmspotting.net. Deadline is Monday, July 27th. From what I've seen, Adam, not a ton of entries so far. Not a ton. Not a ton. And maybe I'll give a hint, which is we promised that we were going to devote a top five to someone who is a major artistic collaborator on that film. And if you haven't seen that film, well, you should watch it anyway, the one we massacred, but you should also watch it as homework if you haven't seen it for that top five when we get to it soon. There you go. And yeah, throw in an entry here. Make a guess because you've got some pretty good chances so far. The winner will be selected randomly from all the correct entries and announced on next week's show. This week over on our sister podcast, The Next Picture Show, it's part two of their Mirth, Wind, and Fire pairing. They talk about the new Eurovision Song Contest, the story of Fire Saga, along with Christopher Guest's 2003 folk scene parody, A Mighty Win. I think it might have even been the same day, and I'm sure that this podcast pairing was rolling around in my head. I was just doing some stuff on the computer, wanted something on in the background. I first started with trying to watch Eurovision, and... That sounds like I'm dismissing it. It was fine. I just eventually had to go to dinner, Josh, and I didn't feel too compelled to go back to it. Okay, so there are things I appreciate about it, but I have not finished it. The respect you give to the art form, Adam, it's just, it's really something. But you know, the next day, how about this for respect? I think it was maybe the next day, needed something on in the background. And I was like, you know what? A Mighty Wind's on Hulu and it's right there in front of me, one click away. I've seen it multiple times. But that seems like a perfect thing to just maybe look up at every once in a while or maybe get lost in and get distracted by. And I watched the entire movie. I watched the entire movie, and I know we talk about it. I know you feel very strongly about it. But the way Christopher Guest sets up that moment, the big emotional moment of that film, that kiss, the way it's set up early in the film, throughout the film, and then leading up to it, the way all the other bands and performers start to kind of rally around building suspense to whether it will come or not it's mm-hmm. it's perfection yeah it's just so wonderful it's great and and not really fair to uh to hold uh, eurovision up against it to be honest now though adam really like would you ever treat would you ever treat a count basie album that way would you just kind of half-heartedly throw it on <laughs> And, and then say, oh, I've got to go to dinner. I'm not going to finish this. I mean, come on. I think you've answered your own question. <laughs> I think we know the difference. Your next picture show hosts are Tasha Robinson, Scott Tobias, Keith Phipps, and Genevieve Kosky. New episodes come out every Tuesday. Find it wherever you get your podcasts. And you can find more info at nextpictureshow.net. 
One way you can support the show, if you're so inclined, is to join the Film Spotting family over on Patreon. And if you haven't checked this out yet, here's what you get as a family member. Ad-free episodes via a dedicated RSS feed, early downloads, live pre-sales and discounts, and a merch discount. But really, we hope what family members have been enjoying the most are our monthly bonus episodes. Uh, this July, this month, what we're doing soon, Adam, we're going to have to figure out a time to do this is a blind spotting edition. We're going to look at Akira Kurosawa's Seven Samurai. This is a blind spot for you. I want to be clear. Yes. Not me, Adam. The one I am most ashamed about. Yes. I, I, I oh, have you're a real cinephile. Obviously seen this, you know, many years ago. Uh, my blind spot that was up for family members voting was Coppola's The Conversation. So also an egregious oversight, I admit. And then we did, as a third option, give family members Gina Prince-Bythewood's Love and Basketball. That's a film neither of us have seen. Prince Bythewood just directed The Old Guard with Charlize Theron, but family members got to vote. They chose Seven Samurai. I'm excited about that because it is a masterwork, and I can't wait to hear what you think of it. And it's only, what, three hours long, so maybe I need to make sure I plan out my day and nothing takes me away from the TV screen? Yeah, don't let dinner interrupt, okay? Okay. We also have ahead, and it does seem that it is impending, a virtual watch party the movie to be voted on by film spotting family members later once we come up with some good options. If me, you, and Sam, our producer, can agree on those three options, we promised a goal of 900 Patreons, and when we hit it, we were going to deliver that virtual watch party. You get to hang out, watch a movie with us over Zoom or whatever, and as of this very moment, we're only 18 away. We're getting there. It's going to happen. It is going to happen, so... We're going to have to start kicking around some titles soon here, Josh. Yeah, I'm going to I'm going to put the Slack message count on that conversation at 76 messages, <laughs> which you know I feel good about. Yeah. That's that's in, and the sure. in the film spotting it's Slack a slow day. That's reasonable. Patreon.com/slash/filmspotting. If you as a listener would like to make a suggestion, even if you're not a family member, we'll consider your suggestion. Send it to us. Feedback at filmspotting.net, and please do become a family member. Patreon.com. Slash film spotting. When was the last time you spoke to her? It's been a few weeks. Gran? Mom? That's a bit from the trailer for the new horror film Relic. It's the feature directing debut of Natalie Erica James. It stars Emily Mortimer as a woman who returns to her remote family home when her elderly mother goes missing. There, she discovers a sinister presence haunting the house. It's always a sinister presence. Why do they go? Yeah, I know. And, of course, she discovers her mother. Relic had its debut at the Sundance Film Festival back in January. It spent a week earlier this month playing exclusively in drive-in movie theaters where there... I could at least probably have someone else in the car and lots of people around me to make me feel a little less scared. It's now available on demand where you watched it. Josh, did you have Debbie or someone else to make you feel safe and secure as you watch Relic? And what did you think? No, it actually reminded me of how I revisited uh, the Blair Witch Project. I, I was kind of uh, alone in a room with it on my laptop, pulled down the shades because it wasn't quite night yet, but I wanted that night dark experience. 
And this got to me. This worked. I mean, the ambiance worked, but the movie worked as well. This is so, so good. I'm really excited about Relic. I think it's worth golden brick consideration, considering uh, this is Natalie Erica James' feature debut. And speaking of feature debuts, it, it shares a lot in common with another movie I like quite a bit, Ari Aster's Hereditary, not only for the way it explores mother-daughter relationships, as you described, Adam, but also just the command of the craft coming out of the gate here. James handles pacing and composition and really has the sort of patience that I appreciate in a horror filmmaker. That's my kind of horror film. There's a moment here that had me gasp, that had me respond like it was a jump scare, like physically, but she wasn't using jump scare tactics. It's It was really just the framing and a slight gesture. I'm not going to give it away, but Anyone who sees Relic is probably going to know what I'm talking about. It, it made me realize what I thought I was seeing is actually something far, far creepier. And I don't even think there's any music being used to kind of like goose the moment. So, so yeah, I think uh, James is a real talent here. And another reason, a substantial reason, maybe a more substantial reason I'm so high on this than The Craft is that it's like so many horror movies, this is built around guilt in a really fascinating way that that got under my skin. And it's the guilt of Mortimer's character, the daughter, that she hasn't been as attentive to her mother as she should, especially as she begins to suffer the effects of aging. And, and anyone who has had aging parents or, or in my case, grandparents, and, and you face some of these questions, you know, th- this is something that's really emotionally complicated mm-hmm. and um, relic while being incredibly scary, dives into those complications. As things progress and get worse, the movie eventually comes to portray dementia as this demonic force, but it doesn't turn the mother, who's played by Robin Nevin, into a monster, uh, which a lesser film probably would have done. Again, it complicates things. There's a powerhouse emotional ending to this that is all about coming to terms with how to love an aging parent who is shockingly changed. So, That's Relic, again, from director Natalie Erica James. And if you're into horror, but even, I mean, it gets, it gets pretty grotesque. So if you're not into Mm. horror, I don't know if this is going to win you over, Um, but if you're open to it, it offers a lot more than you might expect just by the plot description or, or, you know, maybe the trailer even. Relic is available to rent on demand on most platforms. We'll add it to our golden brick list, which you can check out over at filmspotting.net. Just click on lists. And as long as Sarah is by my side, I might just give it a whirl here, Josh. So there's another film that first screened at Sundance this year that we both caught up with. It's the new existential comedy Palm Springs. It stars Andy Samberg and Kristen Milioti. It's directed by Max Barbacow and written by Andy Sierra. It was a big success at the fest. It was acquired by Hulu for several millions of dollars, and it came to the service over the weekend. According to Hulu's own press release, it was a big success, breaking the streaming services record for hours watched over its opening weekend. Let's hear a bit from the trailer. It's going to be a beautiful wedding. Here you are, standing on the precipice of something so much bigger than anyone here. But always remember, you are not alone. I don't think that we met. I'm Sarah. Niles. Hi. Hi. It's going to be a beautiful wedding. 
Well, I don't know about the numbers or the Hulu figures, Adam. Uh, that's all, all fuzzy to me, and really, we don't have to worry about the business. And I will say, you know, judging from my Twitter feed or even Letterbox loggings, seems like a fair amount of people have been have been watching it, at least in my circles, those I follow, and I think they've been enjoying it as I did. It obviously has those Groundhog Day comparisons right off the bat. Is there? Not fair to say is it as good as Groundhog Day. I don't think it has those ambitions. But was there, you know, a way or two for you it favorably compared in your mind to something like hmm. Groundhog Day? Well, I hadn't really thought about it, to be honest. But now that you pose the question that way and I think about it in relation to Groundhog Day, a movie it clearly owes so much to, not just in its overall structure and the concept, but there are several winks and nods to mm -hmm. Groundhog Day throughout the film. Some, yeah. some of them really, maybe all of them really successful. I suppose I actually probably care a little bit more even about the relationship, or I should say enjoy spending time in a way with mm. Andy Samberg and Christian Milioti together yeah. as a couple yes. than I do with Phil and Andy McDowell's Rita in terms of feeling like that's a couple that you really don't want to be together by the end of the movie. You're finally on board, just like Rita is, but maybe you want them to keep their distance. Whereas from pretty much the moment they're on camera together in this film, or really just looking at each other in a series of cross cuts between them while he's giving a speech at a wedding where her sister is getting married and she's drowning her misery in wine, you feel like, oh, I could hang out with these people. I'd like to sort of hang out with these people. There's an instant chemistry that maybe is not there, I guess is really the short way of saying it. There's an instant chemistry I feel between them that maybe you don't feel as much with Phil Connors and Rita. But that's probably about the only thing Palm Springs really has going for it ahead of Groundhog Day. And I really do like Andy Samberg. You know this. I've talked about how Brooklyn Nine-Nine has been really my essential staple viewing since the start of this whole crisis going back to March. And Sarah and I are finally, we're in season seven. We're early in season seven, but I think we're going to be caught up pretty soon. And I have come to really love Andy Samberg as an actor, as a comedic performer. And I think he could be more than a comedic performer. I think you see signs of that here. Not that anyone needs to aspire to be a quote unquote more serious actor, but I think he's got a lot in him, and you see moments of it here. But, of course, the best stuff is the funniest stuff. And I think about the line that probably made me laugh the most in the movie, and it could be just a throwaway moment, is when he's giving that speech, and he comments on the bride and the groom, and he just throws in the aside, who do not look like siblings. <laughs> yes, that's and, great. And we've all seen couples like that. <laughs> I might, in fact, be a couple who some people <laughs> suggest look a bit like siblings. And the way she responds to it, I just love that moment. The locking eyes that happens between them during that speech, there is some electricity there. And with Sandberg, I just get some absurd comedy always for sure. I've appreciated that. Mm -hmm. But there is some genuine pathos there that comes through. I have come closer to breaking down in tears more times watching Brooklyn Nine-Nine, of all things, than I, than I would care to admit. And it really, it comes back to a lot of things in terms of the writing and the characters, but it's always at its core about Andy Samberg and how funny and how just absurdly silly he can be, right? But also deliver some of those emotional beats when he has to. 
Yeah, you're hitting on why Palm Springs really works. And it is Sandberg and Miliati together for me. Obviously, I was familiar with Sandberg beforehand. I, I think this is probably in an absurdity level, a register below something like Popstar, which we both love. Popstar, Never Stop, mm-hmm. Never Stopping. And even Hot Rod, which I'm a big fan of as well. Which I just saw finally. Oh, it's great, isn't it? I mean, and it's good. S- such it's fun. really good. And, and this is a little different register. And I think it's because it is a two-person story, really. And I kind of like how Palm Springs developed into that. Um, it becomes, in a way, it almost shifts and becomes... Uh, Sarah's story, the character played mm-hmm. by Miliati. But yeah, to, to start with with Sandberg, you know, I love that this movie begins. He's basically the one, and this is not giving anything away, but at the beginning, he's the one stuck in this time loop. He's reliving this wedding day over and over. And I love that it starts in a place where he's totally comfortable with it. I mean, he would not choose to be there, but he's kind of resigned to it. And it's almost as if Phil Connors had fully embraced his groundhog days, you know, like, like I'm here. And I think at one point he, he kind of gets there, but then we move on. But Sandberg's Niles is just enjoying himself as much as he can, messing with people, never really vindictively. He's kind of like a friendly fly in the ointment, right? And he does those things like you said, giving a toast. Today, this day, he's going to give this toast and throw a little ad lib in there and see what happens, just to have a little fun. That's how he's living in this existence. Then Miliati comes into the picture and bring some much needed friction to that, right? She's going to shake this up. And from the first time you see Sarah standing, she's in the background of a shot. They're all lined up during the wedding ceremony. I didn't even know she was going to become the main character. I I thought Mm -hmm. maybe it was going to be Niles's girlfriend or the bride or something. But as soon as I saw Miliati in the background, something about her, you knew she was not to be messed with. And she was going to become instrumental to this story. So as a performer, she has that sort of presence. There's a feistiness there. And I think she brings a real sense of hurt and regret as this movie goes on. Sandberg is good in the sincere scenes, but I think Miliati is is much stronger. And as I said, the movie then kind of becomes her story. Niles Mm -hmm. probably could have just kept coasting along, cracking open beers every day. He probably, you know, would have been all right with that. But when Sarah gets stuck... Then things move forward, and interestingly, things move forward for both of them. You know, as 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 she progresses, so does he. Even though he was kind of resigned to his fate, so yeah, that dynamic between the two of them—they're a great, they're a, a team of pathos, but they're also a comic team. When we get to that section where they're both kind of enjoying themselves in this mm-hmm. time loop, and yeah, I'd, I'd love to see them become sort of a, a a comedy duo that gets a chance to make more movies together know what it is it could be life it could be death it might be a dream i might be imagining you you might be imagining me it could be purgatory or a glitch in the simulation that we're both in i don't know so i decided a while ago to sort of give up and stop trying to make sense of things altogether because the only way to really live in this is to embrace the fact that nothing matters well then what's the point of living well we kind of have no choice but to live So I think your best bet is just to learn how to suffer existence. So we can't die? No, uh, the loop just starts over. There might be some way to kill yourself, but I haven't figured it out. And I've done a lot of suicides. So many. When they're smiling and laughing together or waking up smiling, thinking about 
the the day before, which yes. is really, I suppose, the day that was. I'm I'm feeling the same way, sure. and it is about the chemistry between them. And I agree. I was focusing on Sandberg because. I still like to see him in roles like this and seeing him a certain way as a character on a TV show and then getting to watch him branch out a little bit here is really fun. But Miliati is someone who I know I've seen her in a movie or two before, but she really pops here. She really is absolutely as formidable a presence as anyone on screen in this movie. And it's it's a two hander. It it's a case where without her, if I was just watching Andy Samberg living through this dreariness, it would not have that same spark. You mentioned the beginning and leading up to that that wedding sequence. I don't know if you had a similar experience as I did, but one choice by Andy Ciara and Max Barbacal that I really like, that seems to me like a deliberate choice, but maybe I'm just dumb, Josh, was that if you go into the movie knowing what the conceit is, that it's basically Groundhog Day and the characters are going to relive the same day over and over again. The one thing you don't know is whether or not it's going to be like Groundhog Day in the sense that he's already stuck in it. Right. Or or is he going to eventually get stuck in it? So I'm thinking about that the whole time. And when it opens, we go through a good, what, five, seven, ten minutes. And I'll be honest, I think it's really kind of ingenious how they film it. And write it in such a way that you're not really sure. Yeah. Right? I wasn't really sure. You're just thinking, you know what? Like a lot of us, he could just be that miserable right now. We're all stuck and we feel like we're in a bit of a rut, right? And he's in a rut. He's in a rut in his relationship. Everything about it's monotonous. He's going through the motions. We all can feel like that, whether we're actually stuck in any kind of Groundhog Day loop or not. And so until it's finally revealed that, oh, no, he's... He's been in it. He's been in it for a while. You're watching it thinking, well, is he like, is he in day five? Is he in day 500? Mm -hmm. Is he in day 5,000? Or is he not in it at all yet? His life is actually already this miserable. <laughs> and now it's going to be the, the insult almost added to injury that he really, truly will have to relive every day. I thought then it took on just in that that bit of ambiguity. The movie then takes on a little bit of larger meaning because you as a viewer start to think about the ways that your life may be just as monotonous and stuck. Well, that's the brilliance of the setting of the wedding too, right? Because obviously if you're the couple getting married, it's a wonderful day. If you're family, close friends, but it can also be if you're on the fringe as Niles is, he's the boyfriend of a, a woman who's in the wedding party. A wedding day is, is a pain in the ass, really. <laughs> Yeah, it's, it's kind of boring and awkward. And, and, and so to choose that's where he's going to get stuck forever is insult to injury. But yeah, I, I experienced it the same way you did, which I thought was nice. I think it did add that emotional resonance. And the reason we were tricked is because we don't know what kind of Andy Samberg movie we're getting, because in something like Hot Rod, the main character would act like this in the real world, right? He'd be yes, kind point. of either obnoxious or again, kind of devilish in a way. So if Brooklyn you've seen nine, nine as well, okay. Yeah. If you've seen any of that, then you're like, yeah, this is, this is just the sort of character he plays. And then we start to learn the reasons behind it. So that is a nice added extra layer, I think. Yeah. And the most blatant stolen trick from Groundhog Day, besides the whole concept is probably that, that early sequence where he is, trying to woo and trying to wow, I suppose, Miliati's character as she's standing over in the corner watching everybody dance. And he knows 
all the moves. That's where yes. you first start to have a hint that, oh, he's either he's either someone who is really in tune to everyone else's body language and attentive to personalities and their physicality, or okay, this is Groundhog Day. He's been here before. He's been through this wedding reception before. And just like Phil Connors knowing exactly what's coming and being there to catch whatever's falling from the tree, right? It's been a while since I've seen it. Here he knows exactly how to maneuver through this mass of people on the dance floor. And like I said, even though you know it's stolen straight from Groundhog Day, it's still inventive. It's still completely silly and ridiculous. And it brought a huge smile on my face. Yeah, and because it's taking place during a wedding dance, there's it almost becomes a musical sequence, which is which is nice as well. That's it. I really didn't think, Josh, that we would watch Interstellar and Palm Springs, and they would both be movies. We hinted at it at the top of the show, but they'd both be movies that are about, honestly, about space-time and quantum physics. And more than that, I'll take it a little deeper. They are, if you're looking for a double feature, they both ultimately are movies that are about an idea that Dr. Mann expresses when he was trying to justify his behavior. He says something like, you have no idea the yearning to be with others until you're lonely, until that that is taken away from you completely. And I think in some ways this movie, it validates that exact same idea, not only in them wanting to be together, someone to, to share this with, someone who he genuinely connects with, but also with the J.K. Simmons character, yes, which yes. I don't think we maybe necessarily want to get into. But there's a nice little reveal with his character where it suggests this idea that if you can come to terms with it and realize that being with others, and especially being with others you love, really is enough, then it's just really a matter of shifting your perspective and actually kind of kind of seeing the miracle in that. I like the J.K. Simmons character quite a bit. And and also, I'm glad, stick around if you're watching this. You know, it can be tempting, especially if it's, you know, just watching at home to, to get up and start doing something else. But there's an end credit scene with the Simmons character that I think is really crucial to some of the things you're talking about. Yeah, it's good. Palm Springs, available exclusively on Hulu. Sounds like we are both recommending people check it out if you agree or disagree with our takes or just have some thoughts you'd like to share feedback at filmspotting.net. We are also on social media, on Facebook at Filmspotting and over on Twitter. I'm at Filmspotting. Josh is at Larson on Film. And that's another show, another week, Josh. It is, but there are plenty of more shows in the archives, including that original review of Interstellar at filmspotting.net. Check them out. Reviews, interviews, top fives going back to 2005. You can also vote in the current film spotting poll on the website. Pretty simple. What's your favorite Christopher Nolan film? If you want to order show t-shirts or any other merch, visit filmspotting.net slash shop. And if you want to subscribe to our weekly newsletter, you can do that at filmspotting.net slash newsletter. Out on digital this weekend, Dirt Music, an Australian outback set romance with Kelly McDonald and Garrett Hedlund. Human Capital is also out. This is a drama with Liev Schreiber, Marissa Tomei, and Peter Sarsgaard, scripted by Oren Moverman. The Painted Bird is out. Our friend David Ehrlich says it's a gruesome parade of inhumanity in the grand tradition of come and see in the tin drum. Sign me up. <laughs> Sign me up. That That's what I think we need this weekend, Josh. It's probably very good. I'd kid. It's an adaptation of the 1965 autobiographical novel by Polish writer Jerzy Kaczynski. If you take that on, may I suggest Eurovision as a chaser? <laughs> that, sounds, that sounds like wise advice. Next week, we are thinking about revisiting First Cow and talking to the great director of that film, Kelly Reichert. And then in two weeks, we're going to finish our Nolan Oeuvre review. It's going to end. 
the whole experiment, the whole project here getting done, our ambitious endeavor, Josh, going through all of these films, talking about them in preparation for Tenet, whenever it comes out, it will conclude in a couple weeks with a discussion of Dunkirk, his most recent film, obviously. The one, I have to say, even though I gave that a very glowing review and think maybe I had it somewhere in my top 10 of that year, I'm not eager to revisit it. I think it's just because of, of recency bias there. It's not the one I'm I'm expecting to have revelations on, but we'll see. Well, it's also it's a war film, right? And I remember going into it having similar yep. thoughts in that do I need another war film and then I realized experienced what Nolan was doing with that genre. So I can't wait to see that one again. Film Spotting is produced by Golden Joe Dassault and Sam Van Halgren. Without Sam and Golden Joe, this show wouldn't go. Our production assistant is Kat Sullivan. Thanks also to Candace Griffiths and the listeners of the Film Spotting Advisory Board. And special thanks to everyone at WBEZ Chicago. More information is available at WBEZ.org. Our music this week is by The Beths. There's more information at TheBeths.com. For Film Spotting, I'm Josh Larson. And I'm Adam Kempinar. Thanks for listening. This conversation can serve no purpose anymore. Goodbye. Film Spotting is listener supported. Join the Film Spotting family at filmspottingfamily.com and get access to ad free episodes, monthly bonus shows, our weekly newsletter, and for the first time, all in one place, the entire Film Spotting archive going back to 2005. That's at filmspottingfamily.com.